Father God, thank you for today. Uh, thank you for an opportunity to be in this space together. Thank you that we can laugh together, be a community together. Uh, we just pray that you bless us this morning uh, with your presence and help us to, uh, to know you more so we can grow closer to you to grow closer to each other. Amen. All right. Well, besides being bad at foaling, um, uh, I, when I grew up a, uh, a massive Pistons fan. Anybody else a Pistons fan out there? So uh, when I was young, and I got to admit it was relatively young when the bad boys were a thing, um, but that was kind of my first introduction into basketball, right? The Detroit Pistons, the bad boys, the, the great team uh, of that particular era. Um, and watched those games with my dad, and they kind of developed uh, my love for, for the Pistons in that way. And actually, um, as I got a little bit older, I became a really, really big fan. Um, so much so, like, went through the dark era right after the bad boys, um, Loved the Grant Hill era, except for maybe the logo change. You guys remember that one? So we went, when the Pistons went teal and put the, the horse on it, right? Now, I was still a fan there. I actually owned one of these. Carter, if you want to throw up that. If you don't recognize that, what that is is a teal Pistons starter jacket, right? If you guys remember that era, I had one of those. I wore it all the time. Um, it's hard to underestimate or understate how cool I actually was. Um, not only did I have a piston starter jacket, um, I also had some Reebok pumps. Anybody? Yeah? So, right, so like both of those things. While I was talking about that this morning with Greg and Jeremy, realized Jeremy's too young to know what either of those things are. Uh, and that's not cool. Um, so uh, that made me feel bad. Uh, but that's all right, because I got to look at that again. That, that's, that wasn't my actual jacket. I just typed in teal grease starter jacket today, and that popped up and brought, off, brought back all the feels, right? Which, if you actually think about it, starter jackets were pretty dumb. Um, they were the coolest thing in the world then, but be, they did, the zipper didn't go all the way down, so you had to pull it over your head. It was just kind of a, kind of a pain. Um, but I had one. It was great. Um, also brought you all in with nostalgia. I heard that's cool right now, so... Uh, but we continued on through, through the, my Pistons fandom. We made it through the Grant Hill era, which was pretty great. Then we went through another really terrible stretch until we got to the new bad boys, right? Um, and that was probably the height of my Pistons fandom there, right? We had, you had Ben Wallace, you had Chauncey Billups, you had Tayshaun Prince, you had Rasheed Wallace, you had, who am I missing? Rip, that's it, thank you, right? So you had, you had that, that group of guys, and it was just... That was a fun time. Actually, my, brothers and, my brother and I had a little mini t season ticket package at that time. So we'd go to five games a year. We actually could buy the playoff tickets because the Pistons were that good. They made the Eastern Conference Finals a number of years in a row, won a championship in that era. Um, we could sell then our extra playoff tickets and basically go for free all year. Um, also, if you ever want to know about my, the, my Tunnel Pass story, I shared it with Mike yesterday. It's a good one, um, but I can't tell it in church. So uh, we'll save that for later. A uh, different era of my life then. Um, <laughs> uh, but the point of telling that story is that there was a, that my fandom was in, in that space was, uh, was an interesting thing. And um, uh, while we went through those, those down eras, right, before Grand Hill, before the, the new bad boys, uh, my, I would just hope and pray the Pistons would be good again, right? Lions fans, you get it, right? We lived it your whole life. And so... And so actually, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating about this, there would be times that I would pray that we could like draft the next Michael Jordan, right? That I'd actually would, would, would hope and pray with all my belief that, that whoever we pick next would be that. Um, and it, 
And, I, and it created this interesting relationship between me and what faith and prayer look like in that way, right? Because on one hand, the Bible says, acts and you shall receive. So I believe that maybe if I could put enough energy into it, we'd have Michael Jordan on our team. Um, if I could just believe harder, who knows? Um, but as silly as that is, I'm guessing that the core of that idea about having enough faith to make certain things happen or praying the right way or praying hard enough or, or to get God to do something um, a certain way has probably crossed a lot of your minds before. It's probably not a completely uh, uh, foreign idea to many of you. Maybe not every day, but I bet that if you ever experienced a ser serious trial or tragedy in your life, you've wrestled with how faith works, in particular around this, this area. Right? On the one hand, it, praying for the Pistons to draft the next Michael Jordan is kind of silly, but at the same time, there are things like that that matter to us that we pray for and we don't really get how that works. Maybe you prayed for someone to get better from a sickness or for you to get a new job or for a relationship to heal, whatever that might be. My guess is you've wrestled with that at some point in your life. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about faith. Um, and now recognizing as I, so I'll, I'll just be really transparent on this. This morning I woke up and I actually realized I hated my sermon and so I rewrote it this morning, <laughs> right? I didn't, like the, I didn't change the content really, I just didn't like how it was organized. And part of the reason that I wanted to redo that is because it's a really complicated thing that we're going to be looking at this morning. And so I want to just acknowledge that right out of the gate, um, that we're only going to be scratching the surface on a few things. And so if there's more depth that you want, um, let's wrestle with that later and, and as moving on. Um, but we're going to be talking about faith. We're going to be talking about, uh, about how does that kind of thing work. And we're going to do that by continuing our journey through Matthew. So we're going to be in Matthew, 8, or Matthew 9, 18 this morning. So if you would follow along, that's where we'll be. It says this. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I'll be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, Go away. The girl's not dead, but she's asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread throughout the whole region. So in these two stories, we, we, <clears throat> we have some things to wrestle with. It's passages like these that were the reason I prayed for the Pistons to be good. Right? Because it, it, Jesus says to this woman, your faith has healed you. And that could easily just be the same idea as my faith made the Pistons good, which would have been awesome. They didn't, but you know. So what do we do with that? How do we understand what's going on here? And so what I want to do first, I want to just break down the passage a little bit and point out three different observations that we can learn from this passage and then spend the second half kind of talking about what those mean for us. So the story starts with a synagogue leader coming to Jesus because his daughter has died. He's obviously desperate uh, and he's yet not hopeless. He believes that Jesus can still heal her, which is, which is an amazing thing. But I actually want to focus more on the other person in this story. It's the woman. <clears throat> so the synagogue leader comes to Jesus, and he gets up and heads towards her house. And this woman, it says, who's been subject to bleeding for 10 years, uh, uh, reaches out and touches the edge of his cloak. 
Now, there are a few things we need to understand here to really understand what's going on in this little, bit, little section. First, it's important for us to understand Numbers 5. See, in the Old Testament, God gave the Jews a list, a whole bunch of instructions on how to live inside the promised land. We talked a bit about those last week as well. In Numbers 5, he says this, So the Lord said to Moses, Command the Israelites to send away from the camp anyone who has a defiling skin disease or a discharge of any kind or is ceremonially unclean because of a dead body. Send away male and female alike. Send them outside the camp so they will not defile the camp where I dwell among them. The Israelites did so. They sent them outside the camp. They did just as the Lord instructed Moses. So it's important for us to have that concept when we're looking at this woman here in, in Matthew. Because in Numbers 5, we're known as, God gives the Israelites what is known as the camp purity laws. How do you keep your camp pure? And he says there are three things that make you ceremonially unclean. An infectious skin disease, a discharge of any kind, and touching a dead body. Those three things make you ceremonially unclean and you have to stay outside the camp for seven days and then come back. Now, remember last week when we were kind of talking a little bit about the law, we said that every single law that God gave did one of two different things. It was either meant to draw them into a deeper relationship with God or help them care for each other better. Every single law in the Old Testament does one of those two things. And it's important to remember that in this case, too, because that's true as well. See, at first glance, we can read the passage from Numbers and we actually think of it as maybe barbaric or cruel, that we would send people out of the camp. But we need to understand that Israel didn't have the same kind of science that we had today. They didn't understand how bacteria worked or parasites or viruses or any of those kinds of things, but they were perceptive. They'd noticed that if I touch a dead body, there's a good chance I'll get sick, right? Because if you're not caring for a dead body well, a lot of different things grow on them, right? Uh, And and it's not good to be around them. And then you could observe that if I get sick and then I touch you, you probably could get sick as well. And slowly the sickness then begins to spread through the whole camp. And so as a way of protecting everyone, God said, separate the sick from the healthy. And that's, not, that's something we can relate to too, right? When we, when we know someone's sick, what do we do? We, we take a step back, right? If somebody says, I had a cold last week, we probably don't shake hands. We, take, we create a little bit of distance. It's the same idea in this case here. So that brings us back to our story then. Matthew tells us this woman's been subject for bleeding for 12 years. We're told in the other Gospels she had tried to, everything to get it to stop. She actually says she spent her whole fortune. So which one, she was a woman of means. She used those means to try to stop the bleeding. It didn't stop. But then what does that mean? Well, if we look back at Numbers 5, it means that she was ceremonially unclean, that she wasn't actually supposed to be in the city or the village at all, that she should have been outside because she has a bodily discharge. So that means for 12 years, she's not been able to participate into the town or the camp or the village or whatever she's been in in the normal way. She's been separated from everyone else. She feels alone and frustrated, I'm sure. And so she makes a choice. She hears that this man named Jesus is in the town. And honestly, she makes a risky one. She's heard about this Jesus guy, and so she's going to go for it. With 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 everything that that might mean. So we're told in the other Gospels as well that when she comes up to Jesus, he's surrounded by a crowd. So she's not just kind of trying to sneak up and talk to him in a different space one-on-one so that she doesn't get in trouble for being in the city. It means that she's going to be pushing her way through a crowd as a ceremonially unclean person because she believes that if she were to get to Jesus, maybe this thing that she's been wrestling with for so long could be healed. 
and she goes for it. She touches Jesus, and then he speaks a really interesting phrase. Jesus says, your faith has healed you. Her faith healed her. Which leads us to the first thing that I want us to notice in this particular passage. And that's just the statement, faith has power. Now, while that statement is true, I want you to hold on to it a little bit. We'll loop back to it. It doesn't help us understand what faith is exactly and why her faith is able to heal her while others in other situations don't. So let's continue on in the story then. Let's go back to the book of Numbers for a minute, chapter 15. So the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the... Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will, have these, you will have these tassels to look at so you will remember all the commands of the Lord. So this here is a picture of a Jewish prayer shawl. So if you, it was, it, they probably would have looked very similar to this back in Jesus' time. This is obviously a modern one. And you can see there, there are four tassels on the four corners of the shawls. They kind of hang down there in front. <clears throat> and each of those has five knots tied into them, representing the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Though those knots, they would, the Israelites would actually feel the knots, remembering that the Torah itself was a gift from God, their direction in the world. And those tassels in Hebrew are called tzitzits. <clears throat> So you had, the, you, had, you, had, you had teat seats on the edge of your, uh, of your prayer shawl. And the passage says those te- you're to tie those teat seats on the corner of your clothes, which is the Hebrew word for kanaf, where the corner of your prayer shawl is a kanaf. So you, you would have your teat seats uh, tied to the edges of your kanaf, which matters because then we go to the book of Mike, Malachi, which says in chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, it says. Now maybe that doesn't mean anything to you right now. It's not related to the Jewish prayer shawl. But what we have here is actually the the word wings here is is also the word kanaf. So remember we had the tzitzits tied to the corners of your prayer shawl, which is your kanaf. So it says, but you who fear my name, uh, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in his kanaf, right? In the corners of his prayer shawl. Which, actually, the word kanaf can both be translated uh, to corner and wings. And actually, if you were to hold out a prayer shawl, it kind of looks like wings. So those are the, that's how those two things relate to each other. Now, because of this particular passage, it became a pretty common legend around, amongst the Jews a few hundred years before Jesus and during Jesus' time that they believed the Messiah was going to come, and when he did, the tzitzits on his kanaf of his clothes would have special healing powers to them because of this particular passage. They believed that whoever the Messiah would, would be able to fulfill this prophecy. And so what we see here then, is that this, uh, that this, <clears throat> that this woman believes that Jesus is the Messiah, that he, he is the fulfillment of this particular passage, which is why she goes for the, to take the risk that she wanted to take. Which, which actually brings us to the second thing that I want us to observe in this story. This woman is able to identify Jesus because she knows her scripture. 
because she knows uh, about the prayer shawl in the, in, in the book of Numbers, because she knows about the prophecy of Malachi, because she's, she's, she's wrestled with who this Messiah is supposed to be, and she believes it's Jesus. And her faith is formed then by the studying of her scripture. The first observation is faith has power. The second one is that she's able to identify Jesus because the, her, her, that she has wrestled with scripture and has formed her faith in that way. <clears throat> She knows from her scripture that and come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah that was, prof- that was promised, meaning that his tzitzits then have power to heal her, and so she acts on it. She travels to where Jesus is. She risks a lot to push through the crowd because who knows what Jesus' response will be. Will he rebuke her? Will he send her away? Will he, will he actually cast judgment on her for violating the law? What's gonna, what is it going to be? But her faith says it's going to be worth it because if I can just get to the corners of his prayer shawl, I'll be healed. Which actually then brings us to the final observation I want us to take away from this story. She believes her faith had power. She's wrestled with Scripture and identified that Jesus is the Messiah because of it. And so then she acts on her faith. She takes a risk, steps forward, and reaches out and grabs his cloak. Now this, this story helps us then begin, begin to brain, build a framework around what faith is and how it works in our lives. It, it, it provides us of it with an example of what faith can do. And so I want to look closely now in the second half here, back at those three observations to see how each of those relates to us today. <clears throat> Let's start where the story starts, with the, with the original observation of faith having power. Now, my guess is that those three words hit all of you a little bit differently, because I'm not sure I could use three, wor- three words to that carry more baggage than those. That, fr- that particular phrase carries an unbelievable amount of baggage, depending on which tradition you come from. Because my guess is all of you have wrestled with that idea at some point, either intellectually or in practice. Now, there's some of you <clears throat> who grew up in a tradition like mine, where you would totally affirm that statement, faith has power, but then if you actually had to begin to wrestle with what that means, you actually supposed to put, needed to put handles on that, then things get a little bit muddy. In the tradition I grew up in, we prayed for people to get sick, or not to, wow, that's weird, that's not what we did at all. We did the opposite. <laughs> we prayed for people to get better if they were sick, uh, but then what? Then what do we do? Just kind of kind of hung out there for a little bit. Not really sure what was supposed to happen. Not really sure if we even expected someone to get better in direct relationship to our prayer. Anybody else relate to that? Some of you are nodding. My guess is that you also could relate to this part too, that you, this, there's this general concept that I had growing up that some people still may speak in tongues. But that's something that I didn't have much experience with at all. That it's something that I know the Bible talks about, and I guess some people do that this, these days still, but, but that's something different and kind of weird and, and outside of my experience. Or maybe for some of you, maybe you even worried that you didn't have enough faith. That's, 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 that's some people's experience as well. That your, that your lack of faith may, for some of you, for, there was a moment in my life where I would pray for salvation all the time because maybe my faith wasn't strong enough to get me through. Anybody else relate to that one? I'm seeing some nods on that one too, right? Some of us are like, do I even have enough faith to do it? I, I, my wife grew up Baptist, and so that creates a whole new uh, wrinkle to the uh, do I have enough faith thing. 
Uh, you Baptists already know because you worry that you might show up one day and your family may not be there because they got raptured. Any former Baptists out there or still current ones? I don't know. There you go. There, John, right? So you're going to open the door one day and everybody else is going to be raptured and you're gone, but you didn't have enough, have enough faith so you're left by yourself. Left behind, if you will. Right? They wrote a whole bunch of books on that. <laughs> so maybe you wrestled with your faith not being enough to get you to heaven or, the re- or maybe it was the reason someone didn't get better when you prayed. When we really start to think about what it means for faith to have power, it gets really confusing really quickly. And so at least in my experience and a lot of people that grew up in a tradition like mine, what happened is you just shut it down. Maybe you could still affirm the fact that faith had power, but that's as far as I was going to go with it. Because if I, got, I had, if I had to get into the nuances of it, I didn't know where to go with it, and that was confusing and frustrating and sometimes painful. So we just kind of leave it in that weird, ambiguous space. Maybe some of you can relate to me in that. Now my guess is, though, that there's another group of you here as well who had a very, very different experience with that statement. If you grew up in a more charismatic tradition, your response to the statement, faith has power, is of course it does. Obviously it does. It's one of the foundations of how you interact with the Bible and you interact with Jesus. Speaking in tongues happened every week, right? Anybody grew up in a tradition like that? Yeah, see, we got a few of those here too, right? We come at it from a different space. It was a normal occurrence. If someone got sick, you'd call everybody together, you'd lay hands on them, and you'd have a healing ceremony, right? <clears throat> you get baptized into the Spirit, you become faith warriors, you can use your faith to battle the forces of this world. The, the idea that faith has power for those of you who grew up in a charismatic tradition is just obvious. It's just something that you knew, it was part of who you were, it's just how things worked. But my guess is, and I might be stretching a little bit further in this one because I have to, I have to, I didn't grow up in that same tradition, but my guess is that if you're here, and I mean at Harbor Life, and not some of the more charismatic churches in the area, because there are some, quite a few of them actually. My guess is that if you're in this space, that means you've wrestled too with what it means for faith to have power. Maybe you prayed for someone you loved to be healed and they weren't. So what does that mean then? Maybe you were in that space and you believed as hard as you could. You laid hands, you did all the things you were supposed to do, you claimed it, and it didn't happen. If that's true, I'm sorry. That's a really painful thing. I don't mean to make light of that at all. Or maybe perhaps you observed others being baptized in the Spirit, speaking in tongues, doing whatever that might be, but not you. You didn't experience in the same way. So you wrestled. What does that mean? Maybe you just wrestled with the televangelist or the swindler who made overly simple declarations of how the Spirit works. Just send me $77 and we'll pray for it, right? That makes us question a little bit about how this whole thing works. By the way, that's not how it works. You don't send someone $77. Just make that clear. It's 50. No, I'm just kidding. Just jokes. Jokes, not any of it. Let it go. Yeah. (laughs) See, it doesn't take long, though, to to see how much baggage runs along with the statement, faith has power. It's messy. It's complicated. And in many cases, if we don't wrestle with it properly, it can cause a whole bunch of confusion and pain, and it has for a lot of people over the years. So what do we do with that? Because the truth is, the Bible actually isn't subtle about its claim that faith has power. It says it over and over and over again. Jesus' statement of your faith has healed you is not unique to this story. It's actually something he speaks often, something that Paul affirms, that Peter affirms, that John affirms. It's a thing that's all throughout the scripture. 
We see miracles. We see wisdom. We see peace given. It's all there. And so no matter what, tra- no, what tradition you come from, you're confronted with that truth, and you have to do something with it. Which is where our second observation comes in. The woman in the story today had faith in Jesus' ability to heal her because she knew her scripture. She had spent time with it. She had wrestled with it. And as a result, she was able to recognize Jesus for who he was and what he could do and would do for her. And we just walked through some of the confusing baggage we had attached to faith and how it works. And it doesn't take long to point out a whole bunch of complexity and complications, a whole bunch of nuance. And as much as I do actually believe this, the, the truth of the statement that faith has power, I believe that equal, equally for, that with as much force that, 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 that in the complexity of exactly how that works. And I think there's a reason why. And I think it's the fact that our faith resides in a person rather than a formula or a structure. Meaning the only way to understand how faith works is to understand the person we have faith in. And that's not easy. Because there's some things about Jesus that are really easy to understand. Right? If, if he claimed to be God. He, he died. He raised for our sins. Okay, easy, easy uh, first, first day lesson of Christianity, right? Spiritual milk, if you will. But then if you really start to dive into who he is and what he desires for your life, you realize it's difficult. That even what he taught us to do is difficult. So often, what does he speak in? He speaks in parables, right? These kind of confusing stories that are, help, that are meant to guide us and help us engage in the world in a new and different way. For me to know who Jesus is requires me to know what his parables are. For me to understand who Je- what Jesus' mission is here on the earth in, in, in a broad sense is one way, but then what's his mission for me individually in my life right now is a whole totally different thing to understand. And all of a sudden, the complexity of who this person is starts to reveal itself, and we realize, why is faith so tricky? Because we have faith in a person who's complex and difficult and hard to understand sometimes. There's some things that are easy, spiritual milk. The further we go, the more complex they become, Paul calls that meat. Even at its core, if we believe the, the, the foundational truth that Jesus is God, that inherently means he's incredibly difficult to understand, right? He, it cannot be full, easy to fully understand God at all, which means we're going to spend our whole lives doing that. So if you were hoping that we're going to land today's message with a few simple takeaways around the power of faith. I'm going to, sorry to disappoint you in that. It would be easier for us all, but that would also lead us right back into the quagmire we started in. Faith in Jesus is about a relationship with him, with an understanding of who he is, what he came to do, and what our role in that mission is. And like we already said, there are some things in the midst of that we can grab onto right away. There are things that we can, but, there's, but then there also are going to be things that we're going to have to wrestle with through eternity. It's just the way it is. But, that being said, I don't want to leave you completely empty-handed either. Before I move on to the last observation, I want to share with you just a few things that have been really helpful to me over the years as I've read through Scripture and tried to understand what faith means in that way. So get just three different things here. I'm going, with, I'm going in old school, lots of three-point things today because, you know, Again, back to the, I'm nostalgic. I was remembering the Pistons and my old three-point sermons, so we're going to be in that space. It's actually three sets of three, though, so I don't know what that means. Anyway, (laughs) sorry. Some observations about faith. First, faith isn't magic. 
Now, that might seem like an obvious statement to you, but honestly, most of the time when we talk about faith, we talk about it almost in the same way we talk about magic. But, it's, but actually, the Bible spends a ton of energy actually emphasizing the fact that it's not mag- magic, more than you think. I think we want faith to be magic, though, don't we? I want to say the right words, I want to say the right incantations, I want to do the right things, and then I want things to happen, right? That's usually how we interact with that space. If I believe hard enough, then someone should be healed. If I claim the job I want in faith, I should get it. That's what we want this faith experience to look like. We want a formula, we want to know how to do the right things to get the right outcomes. But it's important for us to remember the original human sin, way back in Genesis 3, was the desire to be the God of our own life. See, Jesus says through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do all the things that he did. But what's so critically important is to realize that it's re- that comes as a result of relying on the Holy Spirit, not controlling him. Does that make sense? What we want to do is we want to say, if I do these things, then God, you need to do these things. It's not how it works. That's magic. If faith is magic then we become the gods of our own lives again. We can force God's hands into things if we do the things that, in the right order or formula or with the right words. But faith isn't that. It's actually realizing that I'm not God. It's realizing that I have faith in the fact that he is and he's good and he would like to partner with me on his redeeming mission. So I do, I, do, I do that through his power. Do, do, in doing that, it's his power doing his will through me. Does that make sense? So often we want God to do our will through his power, but that's not how it works. That's what Simon the sorcerer wanted in the New Testament. He said, hey, give me this gift of the Holy Spirit because I want to do some cool magic tricks. Well, that's setting himself up to be, the, be in control of God. It doesn't work that way. Whenever you're in a space where it feels like I get to control what God does, we're in the wrong spot. Now, that doesn't mean we don't ask for things. It is a relationship, so ask away. But faith is trust in another. So first, object, first thing that, I, we can, that Scripture is really clear on about faith is that it's not magic. That it's God's power working through us rather than us using God's power to do things. Second, and this one was, was, really, was a really big one for me, is that faith isn't all or nothing. Now, I'll fully admit, I probably struggled with this one more than other people did, um, but if there's any of you out there who would, can be helped by this, it would be good. Growing up, for me, it was either you had faith, you had all of it, it was one big bucket, or you didn't. Right? You hope that you could just have your bucket be full enough. Right? It was just one category of all things faith. But it actually doesn't take long reading through Scripture to realize that's not how it's portrayed at all. Throughout Scripture, we see, we see this relationship between doubt and faith. And actually, Jesus and the book of Hebrews both say that those two things are in conflict with one another. The more doubt you have, the less faith you have. Now, let me be really clear here. It's not a value judgment against you. It's just an exception of, or ex, uh, like an expression of reality. We all have a relationship between doubt and faith. There are some things that I'm more certain of, because the Hebrew, book of Hebrews says faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you cannot see. It's a surety and a certainty. 
But with, and in an idea of faith being all or nothing, then we, we make doubt this bad kind of thing. But the Bible talks about weak and strong faith as well. A little bit of doubt just means your faith is a little bit weaker. And that, again, is not a value judgment. It's just an, it's acceptance of what is. The other thing that helps us understand that faith isn't all or, is all or nothing is the fact that there are different areas you can have faith in. It's not just one giant bucket. So how do those things all relate together? I have a strong faith in Jesus as a live, as person who lived, as a person who was God and, and, and redeems me. That faith is strong. I don't have a lot of doubt there. When it comes to how spiritual healing works, I believe it exists, I have some faith in it, and I have a whole bunch of doubt. I wish I didn't. Some of you probably are stronger than me in that area. That's great. But in that area, it's not an all-or-nothing thing. I have some, but I have doubt, which keeps, makes it weak. When it comes to who Jesus is, it's strong. When it comes to the, 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 the ability to script, for Scripture to teach me who Jesus is, I have a lot of faith. When it comes to speaking in tongues, I have doubt for days. Faith isn't an all-or-nothing thing. There might be areas in your life in which your faith is really strong, where there's not a lot of doubt, and various areas when it's really weak because there's doubts that creep all around it. You may be strong in one area and weak in another, and that's just how we all are. If that's ever been something you've wrestled with, I want you to know you're normal. We're all in that space. It's okay. Anchor yourselves in the areas in you're strong and begin to work on the areas you're weak. Third observation about faith. It's that it's very different from belief. Sure, faith contains belief, but it's not the same thing. James, in the book of James, James says that even demons believe and they shudder. If you viewed faith as just a series of ideas that you have to accept, you're missing a massive part of it. See, I've always found it to be way easier to view faith the same way I view the, my, the, the health of my faith life, the same way I view the health of my body. If I want to be physically healthy, it requires me to be disciplined. Disciplined in the way that I eat, in the way that I exercise, in the way that I sleep, right? You, you know all the things that you have to do. It's interesting to me that the Bible talks about faith in the exact same way. Actually, the most common metaphor for faith in the New Testament Scripture is your body, right? 1 Corinthians 12, whatever it might be. It's this idea that, that your, the way your body functions, the way your body stays healthy, is very relatable to the way your health stays, or your faith stays healthy. We talked a little bit about faith practices last week, and there, it, it's easy for us then to think about those as workouts, right? They're not always pleasant but they can help make your faith stronger. Works the same way if we stop doing those practices, though. I mean, I could become the healthiest runner in the world. I won't because running is the worst. We all know that objectively. But if I were to run often, then I would, could become really healthy in that way. And when I stop, though, I lose what I gained. Same thing happens with faith. All of the different practices the Bible gives us are help us lead us into this space where we can get stronger in those areas. The more we discipline ourselves in doing them, the stronger our faith becomes. Because again, it's not an all or nothing thing. If it can be stronger, weak, we can become, we can grow and we can shrink. So with those observations, with those with all of those sin things, let's bring it bring it home. To our final observation. The woman in our story today acts on her faith. She steps out, she risks. And that's an important part 
of understanding how faith works. Faith requires, our action, requires action to be effective. Actually, action itself is inherent in faith. It's why James says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. See, the, the idea is not, that particular passage has been taught before as having faith and works being in conflict with each other. That's not true at all. What James is saying is that, that they just are inherent in each other. That if you're going to have faith in something, then you act upon it. If you really believe that eating better is going to make you healthier, then you do it. Or make you feel better, right? Then you do it. Otherwise, you wouldn't have faith in it. That inherent in faith is an acting on what you think is best. And this is the point where we get to put a little bit of handles on things. We spent most of our time today at a pretty high level. Hopefully it wasn't too complicated. Hopefully you're able to grab onto some things. And all the things that we've talked about being true, faith is complex, but it's still accessible. What we see in Scripture is time and time again that Jesus loves and accepts everyone who comes to him. Whether, whether their face like the centurion we looked at a few weeks ago, who just says, all you have to do is speak and, the, and my servant will be healed. Or it's like the father who comes to Jesus later on in the Bible and says, and, 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 he's, and he falls at his feet and says, I, help me in my unbelief because my faith is weak. Whether it's either of those two people, Jesus meets both of them right where they are. But what he does ask each of them is to be humble and honest about where they are. And I think this is an area that I struggled with for years. Maybe you did too. I loved to believe that I was way stronger in all areas of my faith than I actually was. And so I could just ignore the areas I was weak and just focus on the ones where I was strong or even pretend I was strong in the ones I wasn't. One of the best pieces of advice I ever got if, uh, from a counselor of mine who was trying to help me grow in a different emotional space was that we can't ever grow if we don't admit where we actually are. That if we try to build off of something that's an illusion, we will move nowhere. So we believe ourselves to be something that we're not. If we don't take the time to actually analyze where we are, we'll never grow. I think the same is true with faith. Jesus doesn't reject the man that says, please help me in our unbelief. He actually appreciates that he was honest about where he was. And I think we can make that same kind of cry as just an acknowledgement that there are certain areas of our life where our faith is really weak. But that gives us then the starting place to take the next step. Jesus asks us to be honest with that and then he invites us into the next step of our faith. It's not all or nothing. If you want your faith to grow, you start by taking an honest look at yourself. Where are you strong? And where do you have a whole bunch of doubt? Now, you may be sitting here this morning and going, actually, I doubt pretty much everything. Okay, great. We, we, we know that now, and we take our first step from there. None of these acknowledgments, weak or strong, have anything to do with value, and I can't emphasize that enough. Too often we say, if, you're weak, if your faith is weak, then your value is less. That's just inherently untrue. Giving ourselves permission to say, I'm weak in this area, just gives us an opportunity to become stronger. It's an acknowledgement of reality so that we can grow out of it. We take a look at the areas and where we might be weak and then take steps to make it better, to to find a discipline maybe that we talked about last week that can work out those particular areas. Once you know where your weak and your strong areas are, it provides you an opportunity then to take a a simple next step. 
Maybe you realize you don't know if you have much faith in the person of Jesus. Maybe you don't know who he is in a way that gives, lets you, brings you to a place where you can trust him regularly. It's okay. Then perhaps your next step is just to spend time getting to know who he is. Scripture's a great place to start there, to read about who he is in the New Testament. But let's also be honest about this. Scripture is not easy to read. We, that's an illusion that we've portrayed in the church for too long. There are parts of Scripture that are easy to read, and there are parts that are really stinking hard, right? That's, I'm, that's, kind of, I, that's, why, that's why you guys brought me here, I hope, right? Because I went to school so I could learn some of those hard things. And, and so if you're, if you're at a place where you're like, I'm not sure I trust who Jesus is, that's fine. And you can start in Scripture in that space, but don't do it alone. Bring somebody in to help you wrestle through those things. Just picking up and reading the New Testament might not be the best way for you to get started. Maybe it's bring, bringing one or two other people around you and doing it together, wrestling it with it together. God himself says that in order to do this faith thing well, you're going to need each other. So there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't know who Jesus is and I want to learn about him through Scripture and I need you all's help. That's great. Maybe that's your next step. Maybe you realize your faith in the, po- in, in the power of faith is weak. And there's a whole bunch of subcategories to that, right? The Bible promises wisdom. In the book of James, says, anyone who lacks wisdom should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given. Straightforward statement, right? How does that work? What would it look like if you leaned into that promise, that you just trusted that every time you asked God for wisdom it would be there? Maybe a simple next step. The Bible promises peace in the spirit, a peace that transcends understanding. What would it look like to lean into that? In whatever space you have turmoil right now, that you have this, this, this supernatural kind of peace that comes from the Holy Spirit that transcends your understanding, what would it look like to take one step and lean into that? The Bible promises discernment or the ability to forgive or if we want to get really complex, things like healing or, or, or those kinds of things. I would encourage you to just take, uh, just take stock of where you're at with any of those. Pick one and lean into it. Your step leaving here today might be simple, but I do also want to acknowledge what we saw in the woman's story here today as well, that it may also require risk. It might be a little scary or a little painful. Often when we step out into these new areas to explore what those areas of our faith might look like, our weakness gets on display a little bit more prominently. That when we actually step out, we realize, ooh, this hurts. But again, if you relate it to your physical health, If you haven't used a muscle in a really long time, how does it feel when you use it for the first time again? It hurts, right? It feels weak. You feel feel like you can't do it. You feel like those first steps are hard, and until you actually get into the rhythm, it doesn't even become comfortable at all. It's actually incredibly painful and risky. That will be the case here, too. See, there is a reason, though, that the church has survived for thousands of years. And I believe it's because we serve a living God who desires to know each of us, to love each of us, to actually work through each of us in in his spirit, to to, to change us to be more like he created us to be, to get rid of the junk that comes because of the fall, because of sin, and help us to live into this heavenly kind of life we've been talking about through the book of Matthew. I believe that most of us, myself included, have only begun to scratch the surface of what that could possibly mean for us. I shared, I shared this morning, there are areas of my faith that I, I, know, I, I know in one sense are true because the Bible says them because that's where I do have strong faith and yet haven't experienced what that fullness means because of my own insecurities and doubts. 
There's a whole world out there that hopefully I can continue to grow in my whole life, and I want to encourage you to do that too, because I think that what that looks like will be unbelievable. It will be world-changing. It will will actually fulfill what the Lord's prayer starts with, that, that, that this place may look more like heaven than hell. Truth is, in Scripture, that the power of the living God is made available to each of us through a relationship with Jesus. Repeatedly, he's calling us to himself, to the messiness that that relationship entails, to wrestle with the hard things that are so often in conflict with the way that we understand the world. Jesus is calling us into the heavenly life that comes from walking with him. And so he's asking you, will you take a look at yourself and just admit the areas you're strong and the areas where maybe you're not? Not so that you feel shame or guilt, not so that you feel less than or small, but so that, he can, that you can walk with him in those areas to flourish in the way that he desires. Doesn't have to be all or nothing, doesn't have to do jump all the way feet first in now, but just take one step into some area that's new for you, that you can find a new kind of strength there and experience God in a new way. So often when we do that, when we actually put to test some of those promises that were given in small ways, we find them to actually be true, which makes it easier for us to take the next step next time. If I don't believe that working out is going to make me more physically healthy because I've never tried it, I won't do it. The pain's too much. The barrier's too high. I'll start walking that first 5K and say, I'm out. It's easier to sit on the couch. But the only way that I can actually get to a place where I can trust that it's going to make me better is to do the thing, whatever that looks like. Same is true in faith. We're being invited into taking those next steps, even if they hurt, to see if they actually make us stronger and flourish better. And what I've come to find in my life, and hopefully many of you have as well, that it does actually happen the way that God says it will. Meaning that we have faith in the processes that he's given us to become stronger and each time it gets a little easier with a bigger and broader and more beautiful understanding of who God is and what that means for the world. So why not take a step? Will you pray with me? Father God, we just pray that that this morning, wherever we may be, whether our faith is strong in many areas or weak in almost all of them, pray that in wherever we, whatever we've come into this space with, that you meet us where we are. That we don't feel shame or guilt for not being as complete as we'd like to be. But we feel affirmed and convicted to continually for the rest of our lives strive to be healthier. God, we pray that we can experience all that comes through a relationship with you through the power of your spirit We pray that we may use those things, not so that we can do magic tricks, but so that we can actually change the way the world works, that we can make it a little bit more like heaven than hell, that we can experience what the kingdom life looks like and the fullness that comes from it. Amen.